Hi, this is Sophia. And I'm Victoria. And you're listening to It's All History to Me, Auburn's History Radio Hour at 7 a.m. on Wednesdays. Each week we will interview a history professor with the theme of power and people. Let's get started. And welcome to the grand finale episode of It's All History to Me, Season 1. It is 7.01 a.m. here in the Auburn Student Center on WEGL 91.1. And this morning, Sophia and I are joined with Dr. White. Dr. White is an associate professor in the Department of Political Science at Auburn University. He received his Ph.D. in International Relations and Comparative Politics from the University of Maryland in 2016. His research interests include civil-military relations, military organizations, and the management and prevention of armed conflict. His work has appeared, or is forthcoming, in the Journal of Politics, International Organization, the British Journal of Political Science, Security Studies, the Journal of Conflict Resolution, and the Journal of Peace Research. He teaches courses on global issues, politics, and comparative civil-military relations. Thank you so much for joining us this morning, Dr. White. Thanks so much for having me. Happy to be here. Yeah, of course. All right. So to start our conversation off this morning, what got you interested in the fields of political science and civil-military relations? Well, I think like political science generally, uh, I obviously as an undergrad, I took a lot of courses in that subject. I think I was interested in... Uh, working for government when I was an undergrad and then sort of after school I thought more that uh, what I was really interested in was studying government and how it works Um, and I realized sort of over time as I was working in Washington DC I was working for a think tank and interacting with a lot of uh, academics and editing Mm -hmm. their work and what that's really what I wanted to do was I wanted to write and think about big questions and politics and government civil military relations um Specifically, I think I can remember it was second year in graduate school was when the Arab Spring happened. And a lot of us in our graduate level seminars were watching it. And it was really clear, like, the role that the military was taking in those protests in those different countries. And it became clear that that was a really a understudied subject. So oh, that's yeah. kind of how I got interested there. Yeah, very yeah. interesting. Mm-hmm. As a history-centered show, you are the second guest we've had on from outside the history department. We want to show our listeners just how applicable the study of history can be, even outside the traditional understanding of what the study of the past is. How would you say the field of history impacts your work, directly or indirectly? Well, I think it directly impacts my work. So what I do in my research is quantitative research on armed conflict or armed organizations, and, you know, sort of the you learn in graduate school that the gold standard for social science research is experiments. Like you take Mm, two groups of people, you randomly assign them a treatment, and you see if the treatment group is different Mm. from the control group. It's really hard practically and also ethically to do that with studying armed conflict. (laughs) You can't really, you know, for a number of reasons, (laughs) not the least of which is the moral and ethical, not run experiments where you're like, I'm going to take this group and expose them to civil war and this group and not. Um, So what you end up doing is what's called observational research. And for a lot of political scientists and international relations, observational research is history, basically. So, 
you can do that based on comparative case studies. Mm -hmm. If you're trying to focus on a, a research question that might be rare, uh, not lend itself to quantitative social science. I tend to collect and use numerical quantitative data that's been coded by a close reading of history. Mm. So basically trying to divide history into specific equivalent units like country, year, like yeah. a, a country in a year, and then make quantitative judgments on what happened in that mm. year. So did this country experience a war? Did this country experience a coup? If it experienced a coup, give it a zero. If it experienced right. a one, a coup, uh, did experience a coup, assign it a one. Mm -hmm. And then that lends itself to statistical analysis. So essentially, a lot of what I do is synthesizing history oh, yeah. into numbers. Hmm. Based so that, that lends itself. So essentially, from a certain perspective for your listeners, you could understand what I do is I do the statistical analysis of history to try to make inferences about broader trends in society and in the world. Yeah. And ultimately, the gold standard of any political science theory is that it's able to make predictions about the future. So right. if we do sort of a broad, super broad, quantitative statistical study of history, mm -hmm. can we make extrapolations about the future? Yeah, interesting, interesting. Mm -hmm. That totally makes sense. Okay, so is there one research project that you have completed thus far that you feel could be the most pertinent to our listeners or that you have enjoyed the most that would be that you would be inter interested in discussing? I think that something that would be most interesting to your listeners, since there's probably a lot of historians or, or history-leaning folks, is research I'm doing on uh, the American Civil War, specifically mm, yeah. the role of um, West Point graduates in the oh, American Civil War. Yeah. So I'm broadly, as a political scientist, I'm not interested in West Pointers in the Civil War per se, but I'm interested mm -hmm. in the broader question of how militaries fragment in oh, Civil War. Not yeah. Civil War with a capital C, not just the American Civil mm -hmm. War, but Civil Wars more broadly. How did the Syrian military fragment yeah. uh, during the Syrian Civil War? And, and how did the Yemeni military fragment during the Yemeni Civil War? However, it's hard to get statistical data or yeah. archival research based on what's going on in those countries. So instead, is there a historical case where we have good documentation mm -hmm. that we mm -hmm. could code some data on that? So I'm looking through archives of West Point graduates. It's sort of very well documented, looking at their biographies and generating a data set that sort of ex looks at what the background was, what the career was of a West Point mm -hmm. graduate, and ultimately what was their decision? Who did they side with mm -hmm. in the American Civil War? And the story is a lot more complicated oh, than, yeah. oh, Southerners fought for the Confederacy, Northerners fought for the Union. There's a huge number of Southerners who fought for the Union, a, a surprising number of Northerners who'd only been in the South for a oh, couple yeah. of years, two, three years, who made the decision to not go home and fight mm. for the Union but fought for the Confederacy. Interesting. So in that, uh, in that uh, work, I'm looking, I'm running statistical analysis to look mm. at what are the economic professional factors mm, yeah. that drive those kind of surprising decisions mm. of, quote, fighting for the other side, yeah. unquote. Very interesting. Yeah. What has motivated you to continue research the implications of war and conflict that must be more emotionally draining to topics to continuously analyze? Yeah, I, I think that's a good point. It's just sort of reading day in and day out about war and violence and suffering is, um, it can be draining. I mean, honestly, I, there are, I have colleagues who are, you know, doing 
really intense and important work on human rights abuses, repression, uh, genocide, targeting of civilians. And honestly, the work I do is sort of much broader mm. bird's eye view. And I, I don't, mm. you know, it's not particularly draining. And there's a lot of important, you know, findings in psychology that like that kind of work takes its toll on on the researcher mm -hmm. um, and they got to, you know, you have to take care of yourself. I think, you know, thank, thankfully in my research, it's, I think it's in, in important research, but I'm not sort of engaging with the sort of really intense, you know, depict, you know, narratives of, of violence and, you know, the terrible things that people can do to each other yeah. that I, I'm, I'm lucky enough to, you know, deal with it in a more abstract level yeah. but I think it's important also be you know if I'm coding a one that this country experienced a civil war that mm -hmm. led to you know 1500 deaths each one of those 1500 deaths is a personal right. story and it affects a lot of people but um, it's important to maintain distance to do that research but also to also as sort of a human being be conscious of the suffering that those numbers entail yeah totally totally mm -hmm. that makes sense Okay, so I've been getting to study political science and history, so I've gotten to experience both topics and learn more about each field. For any of our listeners that are interested in better understanding the similarities and differences between the two fields, based off what you know, what would you say to them the difference between like political science and history would be? I hope I don't get in trouble with my historian <laughs> colleagues or my political science colleagues, but my understanding is that historians are dedicated to deeply and innately understanding a period, a person, a country, and sort of providing us with a window into that narrative and that history that gives us an understanding of the past and hopefully a better understanding of ourselves. Mm -hmm. So in that sense, my, my sense is historians are about depth. Right. Political scientists, in my view are about breadth okay. that political scientists are about generalizability mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. to my point like in my research i'm not interested in the american civil war i'm in interested in civil war lowercase c right. lowercase w mm -hmm. and i'm interested in using the case of the american civil war to extrapolate lessons about modern civil wars and other civil wars so yeah. wars that haven't happened mm -hmm. yet the general phenomenon of civil wars so yeah. we use history as a set, an observational set of data, mm -hmm. all of history to try to genera generate inferences and conclusions about civil war in general, about yeah. voting behavior in general, mm -hmm. about economic development in general. Yeah. And I think some historians would rightly criticize us for sort of smoothing over a lot of the idiosyncrasies mm -hmm. and rough edges regarding specific cases. And I think there are also political scientists who do, like, really important descriptive research that mm -hmm. digs into specific um, cases. But political scientists generally, I think, are interested in creating generalizable theory that they can test on a broad, as close to universal data set or set of case studies as possible to draw generalizable conclusions yeah. and inferences rather than deeply, deeply mm -hmm. understand a specific case. And that's... A strength and, you know, to be fair, a potential weakness of yeah. political science. So I think the two disciplines are 
complementary. Oh yeah, in super that interesting. Yeah, that's a good way of looking at it for sure, and uh, neat that then they kind of like you know go hand in hand with each other, and yeah. one relies on the other to help make it happen. Hope so. Yeah. Yeah. yeah very cool. Uh huh. What is your favorite part about working in the field of political science? I have a couple favorite parts. I think. Um, I, I, you know, I, I, to be honest, it's kind of corny, but like, I think like working with students, like I find that like yeah. really rewarding, just like the conversations we have in class. Um, you know, I think that sort of sharpens my own thinking. Um, it makes me consider things from a different perspective um, than I had in the past. I think I find sort of the sort of freewheeling conversations that can sometimes come out of a really good seminar or lecture. Um, are really stimulating. I think also, I also enjoy the exchange of ideas that happens at a different level, like with other faculty and oh, professor yeah. researchers, and we work together. Um, you know, I, you know, after this conference, I'm he- after this um, interview, I'm headed to a conference where what we're going to do is something that professors do a lot, which is they bring their working papers mm-hmm. um, to a gathering of other faculty yeah. and they just kind of poke holes and throw rocks at each other's work in <laughs> order to make it stronger. Right. Like that's how it's supposed to work. Yeah. Just say like, you go there, you be very open. Mm-hmm. Okay, here's my paper. Here's something I'm struggling with. Like, mm-hmm. this is a weak point. Help me work through this. Yeah. And then another group of, and then other group of professors from other institutions, mm-hmm. sort of you go, you know, there's a saying like, find your people. Right. And, so I'm the only, to my knowledge, the only political scientist at Auburn University who studies civil-military relations. Mm-hmm. It's rare that there's more than one at a university. <laughs> yeah. But occasionally we all gather yeah. and we can bring our work and we leverage each other's knowledge mm-hmm. and make the work stronger. That's and that's cool. something I really enjoy uh, professionally. Yeah, totally. Yeah. That's awesome. Okay, so for our last question of this segment, broadly speaking, how do you think that international relations and the history slash implications of civil military relations relate to power today? (laughs) Broad question. Broad question. Yeah. Power. Um, So I think that the real interesting question Mm -hmm. about civil military relations is that if you think of power in what political scientists sometimes call hard power terms. The militaries have the preponderance of power in any society. Mm -hmm. Most countries, the, you know, Carl uh, Max, wow, it took me three (laughs) tries to get his first name. (laughs) Carl, Hans, and then Max. Max Weber, Max Weber, who's sort of the sort of, you know, considered the great-grandfather of modern political scientists, Mm -hmm. said that, like, you know, the government or politics or power is a monopoly in the legitimate use of violence. And legitimate use of violence, most of that is housed in the military. It's Mm -hmm. the organ of the government that has most of the most of the hard power. Mm -hmm. So the puzzle then is if the group or group of individuals that have all the guns, have all the power, there is no greater you know, forced in terms of violence that can make them follow orders. Right. Why then do they obey civilian control in most cases? Mm-hmm. More often, not always. Right. And we're, I'm very interested in studying the cases where that's not the case, but in the vast majority of cases, militaries, the people with guns obey the people without guns. Right, yeah. Why? Why yeah. do they do that? And 
the answer is power, but a really different conception of power, normative power. You know, the thing, the most, the bedrock foundation of American democracy is civilian control of the military. Mm -hmm. What the military does, the military obeys civilian supremacy. And a core mm -hmm. tenet is that, you know, we obey the order, the legal orders of the civilian command authority embodied right. in the elected commander in chief. Mm -hmm. Why do they do that? Not because somebody is holding a gun to their head and making them do it. They right. have the guns. And right. I think that's like a really underappreciated and sacred part of democracy and American democracy specifically is the military's obedience to civilian control, willing yeah. obedience. That's yeah. willing obedience. And ultimately, that's about a normative and cultural and ethical power that is paradoxically greater than any physical power. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Very interesting. And mm -hmm. that's a great point. Very cool. Good one to take us to our ad break. Yes, we're going to take a two-minute ad break, but we'll see you after the ad break. All right, welcome back. It's all history to me this morning on Weagle 91.1, and Sophia and I are joined by Professor Peter White this morning. All right, and so we just got done talking about Dr. White's career and overarching big ideas. So now I'll uh, we'll take a moment to talk a little bit more about some of the research that he's gotten to do. So throughout his academic career thus far, Dr. White has completed research projects that explore the implications of how the citizens in countries around the globe interact and respond to the military actions of both their own respective and international government forces. Specifically, data he collected regarding military participation in the government, looking at yearly counts of the members of active duty military military officers in a state's national cabinet or state council equivalent for all countries from 1964 to 2008. Also include did are the total number of positions in the governing body as well as military government share, the proportion of the government body that is active duty military officers. So this has been a cornerstone of multiple of his research projects. So how do you determine the topics of your various projects? Well, I think ultimately it has to do with sort of uh, interest, kind yeah. of what, what's right, you know, what what do I think is interesting in the world, in the news, what's a question that interests me, but it also has to be a question that doesn't really have an answer. Right. So I think sort of what motivates political scientists is what is something we don't have an explanation for, mm -hmm. or we have competing explanations that don't agree with each other. Right. And for me, it was sort of how does armed conflict affect the military's role in government mm -hmm. and how does the military's role in government affect armed, armed conflict? Yeah. And I found that, you know, collecting that type of data to give us a better sense of, you know, looking at every country in the world for a broad period of history, mm -hmm. what is the relative role of the, of the military and government? Right. You know, because from the American perspective, we assume that it's pretty limited. Mm -hmm. Uh, however, that is not the case in a lot of countries. Right. Um, so I think, yeah, again, political scientists, they always say they're looking for puzzles. Like mm -hmm. what, what is the puzzle in political scientists, in political science that needs to be addressed, needs to be yeah. answered? That makes sense. Yeah. That makes sense. What is the biggest challenge to performing research in the field of political science? Uh, to me, I think it is data limitations. Um, so for the type of research I do, like if I want to collect data 
on a universal set of cases. So mm -hmm. I want to create a data set that I have the same data for um, Yemen in 1972 that I do for the United States in 2008. Mm -hmm. I need to kind of find like what is the sort of lowest common denominator where I can reliably get the same information for each country. Mm, yeah. Now for the United States, just given the fact that I speak the language mm -hmm. and I'm a native speaker of that language, I have right. better access and understanding of the sources. There also might be in certain countries better record keeping mm -hmm. for longer periods of time. Um, so if I am sort of, I'm limited if I'm trying to generate a universal global data set in what do the records allow me to do in each country for e for the same for every country? Because right. if I have a crystal clear picture of something for one country, but for 70% of the other countries, I have a very rough picture, mm -hmm. my data becomes biased yeah. and it weights too heavily on the cases that have better data availability. Right. So you need to kind of find a variable or something that you can reliably collect data on everything, or you need to dig really into a specific case, mm -hmm. which I'm trying to do with the American Civil War. But in that case, you have to make the argument that your research on this specific case is easily generalizable to a broader set oh, of cases. Yeah, yeah that yeah. makes sense. Okay. Mm -hmm. So all of your research looks at the kind of international scope of your topics of study. So civil war, peace agreements, and peacekeeping, international crisis, just to name a few. Why might it be especially difficult to collect data from across the globe to achieve research that looks at the trends you are studying at the international level? I think it comes down to record keeping and it also mm. comes down to bias too oh, in yeah. the sources so if you are collecting data that relies on news reports mm -hmm. uh western-based news reports english language news outlets they tend to cover certain countries more those tend right. to be western more developed countries where mm -hmm. it's easy to get information it reflects the biases of the reading public and as in recent years, you get better coverage of native language sources, mm. so you can more reliably get information. Um, but I'd say, like, the biggest challenge is you can only get, and this is where history and political science mm -hmm. intersect, is that I think historians would acknowledge that there are huge blind spots in history mm, uh, yeah. based on the what, what the... Uh, contemporaries of people who are writing things down found interesting right what they were able to write down mm. what their political or cultural biases were at the time yeah who their funders were <laughs> yeah and uh or their patrons and that extends to the present day mm. um so you cannot get reliable coverage of every country every locality at every time throughout right. the world yeah yeah good point good point mm -hmm. What has stood out to you most about your research on p military participation? I think what stood out to me the most is um, that the military as an actor, not speaking about a specific military, but thinking about the military in the abstract in, in different countries, in cases where the military becomes actively engaged in politics, Militaries are very good at 
seizing power, mm-hmm. you know, what we call military coup, um, right. and taking over the levers of government, mm-hmm. but they are not very good at running a government. Right. Um, it's a completely different beast. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's something that is a commonality throughout political science, science and history, too, mm-hmm. is that professionals in the management and execution of violence are very good at what they do because that's what they train for, that's what they're socialized for, that's what they're professionalized for. But there's no reason to expect that somebody who's extremely competent in the fighting and winning of wars Mm -hmm. is going to be extremely competent in the running of the government and making sure the trash gets picked up uh, every Tuesday. Yeah. And I think that's something that, for example, revolutions where insurgents Mm -hmm. come to power, they usually have a very rocky start because they spent their entire lives or years and years Mm -hmm. trying to overthrow the government and then suddenly they're in a position to actually run the government and it's a completely different skill set yeah definitely definitely yeah Yeah, that's a great point okay so what do you hope that your readers will take away from reading your research what do i hope that my readers take away from reading my research (laughs) well first of all i'm wish i could i want to thank them for reading it (laughs) yeah um i think that's sort of the 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 fear of many academics <laughs> is that nobody's reading what they write right. or maybe yeah. them and, and the dozen other people who research what they research are mm. reading it but no I for those who are reading my research like I hope they sort of take away from the you know that they sort of are able to think about this question in a way that they hadn't thought about or sort of for the person who's sort of more generalist that probably doesn't know what civil military relations is like it's kind Mm -hmm. of a niche subject civilian control the military yeah i think the fact that we don't think about it a lot in this country illustrates how important it is yeah that's a good point because we don't have to but if you live in pakistan or egypt Mm -hmm. um or any number thailand any other number of countries it's something that affects your day to day right um so what i hope is that somebody who reads my research takes away from it that like wow civil military relations is important Mm -hmm. and civilian control of the military is important and maintaining that healthy relationship between civilians and the military and governing the military is really really important to the maintenance of democracy and to the stability of society yeah that totally makes sense and ties well to what we've been talking about earlier too or (laughs) just you know the u.s model and taking for granted that the military is uh such a powerful organization that also like you know is willing to take orders from somewhere that's not the same like skill set as them or yeah i different. think the fact that most voters don't have to think about pol- civil military relations yeah. <laughs> they don't have to think about the military as a political actor right. indicates that america has really really good mm-hmm. civil military relations comparatively right i, mean, I think like rightly so like you could point to different periods in time including now and say that oh there's sort of problems or crises in civil military relations Mm. but a crisis in civil military relations in the united states would be like an amazing breakthrough in civil military relations in pakistan oh yeah um, for Mm. example so the fact that americans aren't waking up every morning worried about civil military relations means civil military relations is good yeah but the paradox is is that good civil military relations require that 
Americans and civilians specifically care about it. Right. Yeah, that totally makes yeah. sense. And that if it if it gets swept under the rug or people just are like, ah, oh, it's fine. Yeah. Then right. Because the, the military cares about it a great deal. Yeah. And like they, that they care a lot about the military being used for political purposes or the military as sort of an image and a cultural object mm-hmm. being politicized um, and study it and, and care a great deal about right. civilian control of the military and that aspect of the military ethos and the military ethic. Mm-hmm. Honestly, I think that civilian politicians and civilian intellectuals don't think enough yeah. about it. Yeah, oh, that's a good point. Yep. All right, we're going to take a two-minute ad break, but we'll see you right after the break. Welcome back to It's All History to Me here on WEGL 91.1. All right. So this morning, Sophia and I have been joined by Dr. Peter White from the Political Science Department here at Auburn University, if you're just joining us. And now we're going to move into some more discussion about Dr. White's work and overall like theme of our semester-long show. So this semester, Sophia and I have been focusing on the theme of people and power as we learn more about the work of the amazing scholars we've had the pleasure of talking with. So we feel that uh, your work, Dr. White, provides an especially interesting analysis of the implications of people and power at the global level. To conclude the semester and this season of our podcast, we want to spend the next segment discussing the implications of your research on the topics of people and power. So, to start, what is your scholarly definition of people's intrigue with power? What is power in international relations, more broadly? (laughs) Well, I'm going to lean heavily on the textbook definition of power. Right, yeah. It's like power in political science and international relations Mm -hmm. is the ability to compel someone or something to do something that they wouldn't do on their own. Right. Or not do something. Right. We talk a bit about deterrence and international relations. Mm -hmm. Um, So really, if you sort of think about it like there's an actor or a country or a leader who's on a certain track, and then there's an intervention Mm -hmm. or a threat, or something like that right. that causes them to change course, mm-hmm. to either do something or not do something, that intervention, the fact that it matters and makes them change their behavior is power. Right. Yeah, yeah. that makes sense. That makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. And, <laughs> and to be clear, like power, I mean, political scientists, international relations, think in terms of both hard power and soft power. Like right. hard power is sort of, you know, force, violence, mm-hmm. military power, economic power. But soft power is the ability to persuade. And sometimes that has to do with culture and ideals. Right. Um, and the appeal mm-hmm. that you might have as a person or a society. Yeah, um, So absolutely. it's not strictly, you know, you know, guns and, and threats. Yeah, yeah. definitely. Mm-hmm. <laughs> big picture questions right, to answer sure. at 735 oh, in the yeah, morning. Oh, it's fine. It's <laughs> better than a cup of coffee. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Is there any project that you that you have worked on that includes a specific anecdote that ties to the theme of power and people really well? Specific anecdote with um, power and people. Um, so I think I talked a bit in the beginning about how the Arab Spring kind of was really piqued my interest in civil-military relations. And I think what really, really strikes me is this sort of drama that unfolds during the Arab Spring on Tahrir Square, which is sort of that central 
uh, location in Cairo mm. in February and March 2011 when all the protesters are gathered there and then the military arrives and the leader of the military, Field Marshal Tantawi, arrives and he's greeted not with fear because typically you think of when the military shows up to a protest in a lot of these countries, violence is, is on the horizon. Mm, yeah. But the protesters there mm -hmm. see the army and Tantawi as a potential ally. Oh, and they greet yeah. the army and the tank, lift children onto tanks mm. and flowers and, you know, cheer the, the, the arrival of the, the field marshal and they start chanting the people in the army are one hand, which mm. basically means like we're all, we're all together, we're all in this together. Right. And what you have there is a really intersection of power, yeah. like the hard power of the military showing up with their tanks and their weapons, like mm. they could kill everyone there, right? crush the revolution in a moment. Yeah. But the people have power there too, mm -hmm. because what they're doing is they're being very strategic. They're being really thoughtful. Protesters aren't stupid. They're very, very mm -hmm. strategic, mm -hmm. is that they know that even if the regime, Mubarak and his cronies, want the military to start shooting protesters, they also know that the military is made up of conscripts. People have been drafted, 18, 19-year-old right. kids, who, you know, know some of the protesters, mm, if not directly, yeah. kind of know who they are, where they come from, mm. and feel a lot of sort of kinship and commonality with them right. and are going to be hesitant to say the least to open fire on their country yeah. country people um so the protesters in that situation an awareness of that and an understanding that okay that 18 year old kid doesn't want to shoot me yeah and i he knows that i know that mm -hmm. and his commander knows that and the leader mm -hmm. of the country knows that i have power yeah so definitely. like giving flowers to them like lifting your kid onto a tank ch cheering the general is kind of activating that power mm, yeah. and saying, huh, like you're here with the guns, but you can't do anything about it. Yeah. Because, and I have, and I have power in that moment. Right. Too. Yeah, yeah. That makes sense. Mm -hmm. And knowing that power doesn't necessarily have to come from big groups or right. especially like, you know, world renowned figures that it can come yeah. from I anywhere. Think the famous quote from Mao is that political power grows out of the barrel of the gun. Oh, yeah. But guns, the triggers are pulled by people. Mm -hmm. um, and if the people with the guns are for political reasons, cultural reasons, unwilling to pull the triggers, then if you have the ability to persuade the finger that pulls the trigger not to do it, you have power as well. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's a good point. Okay. So through your research and knowledge of international relations, do you think that power is a universal allure or something that means different things to different cultures? I think that power, I mean, I had a sort of super broad definition of power. Mm -hmm. So I think everybody wants right. power. Like yeah. Everybody wants, I don't think everyone wants particular kinds of power. Mm. I don't mm -hmm. think everybody wants the power to make military threats. Right. But when we broaden it to consider the power to persuade, mm -hmm. the power to win people over right. willingly. Because yeah. I don't think everyone wants, I don't think everyone wants the power to make someone do something against their will. Right. But I think that if we broaden it to consider the broader sort of soft power definition mm -hmm. that's in political science of 
the ability to persuade people, mm-hmm. win them over, get them to willingly do what you want. Yeah. I, I, I mean, it's hard. I mean, I think that has a universal appeal. Mm, definitely. You know, build consensus. Like, I want a certain outcome. Yeah. And I'd really like people to do that outcome, but I want them to do it willingly. I don't mm-hmm. want everyone to be angry and resentful of me. Right. Um, I feel like that has a universal appeal. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Do you think that large political, cultural, political culture or interest group with international following or prominent pol- political or cultural leaders with the ability to share their platforms on an international level have more power or is it about equal? <laughs> so the question is, do different leaders have different amounts of power? Or, yes. Okay. Whew. Well, I mean, I think that I think it's variable. I think a lot of leaders have different amounts of power. I think it depends on what's backing that power. Different international leaders have different amount of power based on the power resources of the countries that they represent. And different leaders, if we again we broaden it to include that concept of soft power, power to persuade. Mm-hmm. I mean, we all know that there are certain leaders who are really good, good speakers right. and really compelling and can really win people over. You know, Volodymyr Zelensky in Ukraine mm-hmm. has enormous soft power, mm-hmm. like enormous capacity to persuade, very, very persuasive, charismatic, really wins people over like a popular figure who's literally on the cover of Time magazine. Right. Um, Vladimir Putin, not particularly charming man. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> doesn't have a lot of soft power, maybe did in a different in a different era. Mm-hmm. Um, so certainly, you know, I think um, it, it depends. I think biases yeah. f- figure into it very well. I think like just, I think I kind of, when I was thinking about leaders, I think we have a cultural bias and a preconception to think of leaders, to think of like the Sir Churchillian ideal statesman, mm-hmm. and that's sort of biased in terms of gender and ethnicity. Yeah. I mean, I could have just as easily said, um, you know, Angela Merkel, mm-hmm. you know, Angela Merkel, you know, extremely powerful, yeah. important leader mm-hmm. doesn't necessarily come to mind very quickly because she doesn't necessarily have the like incredible stage presence and rhetorical skills that we associate with leaders. But right. that sort of association inherently lends it, it stems from like our particular cultural biases because right. we have a very yeah. specific like image of what a leader is right. but if you look at like efficacy mm-hmm. and what leaders are able to get done mm-hmm. in terms of policy and politics mm-hmm. uh, you know Angela Merkel I think would be an example of an extraordinarily powerful yeah. uh, leader oh, interesting interesting yeah. And then I guess kind of stemming off from that, so would you say that groups of people or individuals can wield more power? Or do you think that that's too difficult, too subjective to tell? Groups. <laughs> I, I mean, I think um, simple answer would be I think a group is yeah. greater than an individual, but individuals can activate and mobilize mm. groups in, right. in a certain way. I mean, I think that there is a... A lot of really excellent work in political science that analyzes the strategic actions of the civil rights movement oh, in the yeah. United States. And mm-hmm. sort of key insight of this literature is that it's not just like an organic 
movement, although that's a part of it, like it requires thousands and thousands of people to be willing to put their lives in line and mobilize right. and yeah. march across to Edmund Pettus Bridge and thousands and thousands more to have sympathy. Right. But it also requires a core group like the Southern Christian Leadership Conference and mm-hmm. Dr. King, who are not just sort of moral leaders and cultural leaders, but they're deep strategic thinkers. Right, yeah. And are thinking very carefully about how to mobilize resources. There's mm. an entire literature in political science called resource mobilization yeah. on how actors like Dr. King think strategically about how, okay, by mobilizing these people to march across Edmund Pettus Bridge mm-hmm. and presenting to the world this image of peaceful protesters, men, women, children, right. clergy, citizens being brutalized, mm-hmm. um, that image presented to the world creates power right. and sympathy. Yeah, And that's not an accident. Mm-hmm. That's a very, like, I think Dr. King is... You know, political scientists, I think, would argue that Dr. King is understood as a moral leader, but he's also he's underappreciated as a strategic leader. Mm, Yeah. Yeah. That totally makes sense. And that it's the combination of both factors that make a successful, powerful, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, impact on history and politics. Because I think a key insight, I think a bias is that when we think about strategy and strategic thinkers, we think we another bias we have is we tend towards military things. So oh, we think yeah. of like a leader of an insurgency or mm-hmm. a general as being a strategic leader. Yeah. Less understood and something that a lot of recent scholarship in political science that, that I, I don't do, but a lot of other phenomenal scholars are doing, looks mm-hmm. at how leaders of nonviolent movements like the civil rights movement, like the protests in Egypt are in fact like strategic thinkers as strategic and as tactically minded Mm. as any general or guerrilla leader yeah that totally makes sense all right we're gonna take our last two minute out break but we'll see you right after the break all right good morning and welcome back to it's all history to me we're here for our final segment with dr white and our final episode of the semester all right so our next segment is our Q&A with trivia-based questions. So our first trivia question for you, Dr. White, is who was, let's see, oh, here we go, here we go. Okay, who was the first U.S. president to visit the People's Republic of China, and what year did he visit? <laughs> uh, it's going to be Nixon. Oh. And... say 1972 oh that's impressive yes that's right on both the wow. president and the All year right. <laughs> very impressive yes the year wasn't a guess on my part <laughs> oh yeah right. yes president richard nixon was the first u.s president to visit the people's republic of china in december of 1972 after the people's republic was established in 1949 all right. And for our second question for you, what country has sent the most leaders slash dignitaries to deliver joint meeting addresses before Congress? Wow. <laughs> My last one was Zelensky, so it's obviously not Ukraine. I'm right. going to say United Kingdom. 
Ooh, okay, interesting, interesting. So what I found was that with nine addresses, France has the distinction, yeah, of sending the most leaders or dignitaries to deliver joint meeting addresses before Congress. Yeah, interesting. I didn't know what to expect with that question. You never know. (laughs) Fun trivia. Yes, cool. Okay, so for our last two questions of the show, we always like to wrap up with these two things. So first, what, why is it important that we study history slash political science? Well, I think um, the sort of cliche about history would be that those who don't study history are doomed to repeat it. <laughs> I think, um, but I think political scientists would say that you need to study political science because then if you only study history, you may try to extrapolate general lessons from idiosyncratic cases. Mm. So I think that like if you ask Americans about international relations, mm-hmm. they're going to have a hyper-awareness of very specific cases like World War II. Right. And they're going to extrapolate generalizable lessons from this very unusual very specific case mm-hmm. great power war is exceedingly rare right on the scale of world war ii even rarer so it's as important to focus on the cases where war doesn't happen as the cases where war does happen mm. so you have to look try to look at the universe of cases to fully understand broad if you want to make broad statements about human nature and human activity you need to look at the broad range of cases you can't just look at world war ii you can't just look at the roman empire you need to consider you know um all the different civilizations that exist in the global south that exist in all realms of the world like we have certain biases and blinders on and that's okay because Mm -hmm. you know that's sort of what the sort of culture where we grew up in and are inculcated in. But if you, what you want to do is not just make a statement about World War II or the Roman Empire, um, but make a statement about war and empire in general. Mm, you need right. to broaden your perspective and think about those things in general terms, yeah. which is what political science is about. Yeah, that totally makes sense in that if you're not careful of analyzing everything, then you don't want to get the wrong message from something. Sure. That totally makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, cool. And for our last question of the show and last question of the semester. Yeah. (laughs) A lot of responsibility. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I have no doubt it's going to be a good answer. Okay. What advice do you have for current and future students of history and political science? I think it would sort of dovetail with my last answer. Mm -hmm. would be don't hit if, like, you are like me and, like, a World War II nerd. (laughs) <laughs> um, or a Roman Empire nerd, I think I kind of like hold my, hold on myself with uh, that last answer. <laughs> Don't just take the courses on the periods in history or the topics that you know a ton about. Mm, right. You're, you, you can shoot your hand up and know every answer, and it's a breeze. Mm-hmm. Like pick the course where – the title is a blind spot for you. Oh, yeah. Like, find your blind spots. Flesh those out. If you don't know anything about the Incans or the Aztecs Mm -hmm. or um, the Zulus or, you know, the civilizations of Southeast Asia or Polynesia and you have an opportunity to take a course like that, do it. 
round yeah. out, give yourself a broad understanding. Because if you want to understand big questions, mm-hmm. and big trends in history, if you want to understand not just you know, Roman behavior, but human behavior, not just American politics, but politics, find your blind spots and go uh, as fast as you can. Run, don't walk for the <laughs> course whose title just raises question marks yeah. for you. Oh, that's great advice. That's yeah. great advice. And yeah, definitely taking advantage of the time that you have to learn about as much as you can and sure. get your horizons expanded. That's yeah, great no, advice. it's advice that everyone, you know, myself included, <laughs> uh, could could stand to follow. Yeah. Sure. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. Very cool. Well, to wrap up this morning's episode, we want to say thank you so much to you, Dr. White, well, for joining us early this morning. Thank you. It was a yeah, lot of fun. Yeah, of course. And thanks to the history department and our uh History Club advisor, Dr. Schultz. Thank you to the College of Liberal Arts and Dr. Israel, which is the who is the Assistant Dean for Academic Affairs. Thank you for your support. Thank you for our researchers who have made all of our questions possible this season, this semester. And thank you to Weagle for having us on. We've had a great time and are hoping to continue to interview more professors and have more fun conversations. And yeah, so thank you to our listeners, of course, for making our show possible too. Without you, we wouldn't be here. And this is our last show. So we'll see you again in the fall. Thanks, everyone. You've been listening to It's All History to Me, the show dedicated to exploring the people, places, and ideas of our past. Be sure to tune in next Wednesday at 7 a.m. for more. But for now, keep it here on Weagle 91.1. See you next time.